Hi, and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And this is episode 41. I'm Lee Ford, and I'm joined as ever by the man I couldn't do the show without, of course, your friend and my friend. Andy Meekin. How are we doing, Andy? Are we well? You have to say you have to say my name in that tone as well nowadays. Andy Meekin. I've actually changed it by default to Andy okay. Meekin. When you finally get that talk show, that will just, just <laughs> serve the purpose. It will stand out amazingly. It will. Anyway, uh, yeah, um, same old, same old, isn't it, at the moment? We're just, we're just plodding by. But I did have an exciting week this week. Of, um, I got to speak with two people doing a student project on the current situation on cinemas, which has also been used on their podcast from um, Anastasia and Inners called A Cup of Chatter, which you can find on Spotify. Thoroughly recommend it. It's the first time that I've encountered their podcast because I was listening back to see what part of my interview they put in there. And I've, I've now subscribed to their series because they're such a pleasant listen. But they do a really good analysis of the current state of the cinema industry. And uh, they asked if I wanted to say a few things. And yes, I did. Jolly good. And what was it again? A Cup of Chatter. You can find it on Spotify. It's very easy to find. And um, yeah, it's a it's a pleasant 45 minute listen. So uh, all the fans of our show, totally recommend. Go and check them out. Okay. So on this episode coming up, of course, we have the news by Andy. We'll be reviewing Rebecca. I'll be reviewing Vampires vs. the Bronx, all the info and chatter from around the web, and Andy's Oscar classic for this week is Wonder Boys, as well as our usual neat thing roundup. But before all that, this is the item in which Andy Meakin, who has spent the last week trawling the, the depths, the dark web itself, to find you all the latest news and gossips in a segment we like to call the news. I'm permanently plugged into the internet for the news. It's a, a proper jack. You like Johnny Monomic now? Yeah. Yeah. Just I'm 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 straight out of a William Gibson novel. Yeah. There's a plug just behind your ear. Let's do what we usually do and start off with the depressing news before we get okay. on to all the good stuff which is coming. So, latest news on the state of cinema. AMC have reported that they might be out of cash by the end of this year. Ooh, that's worrying. And may end up following Regal and Cineworld in closing doors if things don't improve. It's that knock-on effect, and we've talked about it every week, that one cinema chain closes, there's a repercussion across all the cinema chains. Yep. Uh, the International Union of Cinemas in Europe have issued a statement about the state of the industry and pointed fingers squarely at distributors such as Disney who keep pulling their films off the release schedule. Well, we mentioned Seoul last week as a probably the nadir of, of, of their choices. In their words, by the time some studios decide that the moment is right to release their films, it may be too late for many European cinemas. So, yet again, more depressing news, more anxiety within this industry that I love and have been part of for two decades. Uh, this is why I got to talk with Anastasia and Inez for their show over this past week, because it, it really does hit home. Uh, there's rumor that there's been the rumors that we've spoken about that studios might buy out cinemas. Yeah, we, we talked about this a few episodes ago. Now, whilst no comments have come from Amazon and Netflix, and we know that Netflix bought one cinema in the US last year when it when they were allowed to, basically. So we know that Netflix is definitely in, interested in it. We know that Apple are. But the big distributors apparently aren't. And Universal and, Europe, and Warner Brothers have specifically ruled it out. Uh, Donna Langley of Universal has said that they've got no plans to do it currently. And Anne Sarnoff from Warner Brothers said that they've got no plans either. However, went on to say that she believes people want to have communal experiences, and especially with certain genres. We're big fans of the exhibitors. They've been good partners of ours for many decades. We're rooting for them. I know it's tough sledding right now. I'm hoping they come out on the other side probably even stronger it's always nice to have someone supporting and saying that they're rooting for you whilst they're at the bottom of the hill watching you bounce off rock rock <laughs> rock rock you know once the corpse has landed at your feet then you can go over and just check if we're still breathing love but at this point in time your platitudes mean nothing to anyone in the industry i've got a, a wily e coyote vision in my head when as soon as you said that <laughs> <laughs> I was I, while I was saying it, I was thinking more Homer Simpson after trying to skateboard off um, the edge. Oh of the yes, the classic <laughs> season. Uh, on the plus side, New York is almost ready to start opening some cinemas. That is good news. I've got a lot of friends in New York, and um, I've kept in touch with them as best I can over the um, over the last few weeks. And, and and knowing how difficult they've had it as a city, it's uh, whilst it's, it won't be opening on mass, and it 
it won't be a lot of the central Manhattan area. It'll be some of the outlying areas that they're going to start with. It is good news that they're finally getting through to the other side where they can start opening things up. And maybe one, we know that a couple of theatres in the LA area have already opened. Once LA and New York have opened, maybe more footfall will start to develop. And maybe, maybe those big distributors might grow a set of cojones and throw us a bone. But at this point in time, we're still relying on all the smaller distributors, which we cannot be more thankful for. Jolly good. That is is a, a sliver in this otherwise pressing state of uh, state of affairs that, that just give a little bit of hope. A little gleam of light around the edge Indeed. of a dark cloud. Uh, Dan Loeb has sent a letter to Disney CEO Bob Chapek this week to suggest that the company should just forego its planned theatrical releases completely and move them all to streaming. Now, this is something Disney have been commenting on quite prominently over this past week, that their focus now has nothing to do with theatre experience. It is all about their streaming service. Yes, well, I saw this, and the reference that he made was uh, movies like Black Widow should move to the to streaming and completely forget about a cinema. And now we've had plenty of chats about this over the last few weeks. And, and I think uh, I think we're pretty clear about where we stand on this and that if Black Widow was to come out next week, then we would have, to the best of the abilities uh, affordable right now, a full cinema. I completely agree. I mean, it, it, whenever I encounter this argument online, you get people saying, but there's not many people who want to go. I work within the cinemas. I've seen the numbers of people who do want to go to the cinemas. And if you have the right release they will be busy cinemas. Now, there's also been chatter amongst that about having a simultaneous release to VOD yep. and cinemas, which we've seen happen successfully, to be honest, over the last uh, over the last few months. Uh, Bill and Ted, Face of Music, being the, uh, being the obvious one. I, I genuinely don't think there's any harm in having the joint releases. Because there will I mean, things like Black Widow. Yes, there's some people who will happily sit and watch it on their home screens. Generally, you'll find they're the kind of people who never went to the cinemas anyway Absolutely. and always wait until they came out on DVD. People who want to experience the thrill of a Marvel film on the big screen will go and watch it on the big screen before they watch it on Disney+. Plus. I don't think that Disney would lose any subscribers because people would still want the, to have the chance of re-watching it after they've watched it for the first time to you know, revisit it, explore it a bit deeper. And the cinemas won't lose out because people who go for the cinema experience go the cinema experience as i always say as my example people who say oh it's on streaming why should i go to the cinema to watch it so, okay so why do you keep asking for us to put back to the future on <laughs> you know you, i'm pretty sure most of you have got that at home so why do you want to see it on the big screen because it's an experience interestingly enough though isn't part of the revenue and we we know this from from our time in cinemas is that you go back you pay again to go and see something so you might go and see black widow the first time round. And then, as you suggested, you might go and watch it on VOD. Aren't we therefore losing that crowd who will go back for the second and third helpings? Like, I'm, I'm sure part of the big reason a movie like Endgame was as big as it was is that people went back to see it the next week, and, and in fact, the next day. Would we not be losing that custom by, by using that method? I don't think you'd lose a huge chunk, because I think... And I can't, I, yeah, I, I can't really like go into the full analysis of this, but only from my own observations that most of the people who do that and we see them coming back for the same film over and over again tend to be membership card holders, right. particularly in the UK where pretty much every major chain has its own subscription card. So for that customer, they're not paying anymore. So it's not losing any particular money, whether they come back for a second viewing or not. And the people who do pay full price who come back to see it, they won't come back and see it like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. But I do think that some the people with that mentality would still come back to watch it a second time to get the cinematic experience again before they sit and watch it at home. I personally would rather watch something that I love on the big screen, oh, well, even if I've seen too. it on the big screen only two days earlier. If I've got the opportunity to do it, I would love to just revisit on the big screen a few times. Plus, you've all, you have to realise as well, you've got the people who will want to see things like Black Widow on the IMAX. So they'll go seek out an IMAX cinema. And then once they've seen you on IMAX and had that experience, they might want to go and experience the 4DX. They might want to go and just experience it in the standard screen without the 3D gimmicks. There's, there's people who will want to experience it in different ways. So I don't think, yes, there will be a drop-off, but I 
don't think it'll be a significant drop-off. And even like a 25% drop-off at the moment would mean 75% of business. 75% of business would be amazing. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. Anything in the in the line of, of good news for us? Yeah, Batman's a scouser. <laughs> well, yeah, I saw the picture and I instantly thought <laughs> about you when I saw uh, Batman, or should we say his stunt double, uh, atop yep. the Liver building in Liverpool. It, it, it's a strange experience to see familiar locations from my childhood being used in a Batman film. And it's going to make that whole film such a weird, weird experience for me. The filming for Batman, as we're talking about, has been continuing through Liverpool over this past week, even though the city is on the maximum lockdown for the coronavirus at the moment. They have all the restrictions, but because the set is completely closed, because of all the rest- like the protective measures they've got with keeping everyone within their own bubbles, etc. when they're doing things. It's an bubble right now. Uh, yeah, the so they've been choosing the, the places to get some of the key scenes. And we've seen St. George's Hall, which is just uh, near Lime Street Station, being used for Gotham City Hall, which I mean, it, it perfectly suits it. Uh, you've seen like the museum sector getting used for other shots, and we've seen Batman on the live building. Now, I've been saying all week to people who've been going like, why are they filming Batman in Liverpool? It's a perfect representation of Gotham as far as I'm concerned. Liverpool has such a great mix of old architecture with modern designs like right next door to it, which kind of fits the whole Gotham feel that it's an old city that is being redeveloped and refurbished. And I think it's a great choice to go for something like this, where you're going to get that blend of, you know, gothic, classical and modern. Absolutely brilliant. And it, it makes me so excited to see my hometown being used. Although I will get angry when locations don't quite match up when I'm watching it on the big screen. <laughs> well, they won't. They won't. There'll be a great amount of special <laughs> effects to create a city. But you remember yeah. that they did uh, the majority of Captain America in the UK. Manchester was used uh, for and, the and canal scenes, right. wasn't it? Manchester was its uh, was its main street. I mean, they used the, some of the, the dock area. Um, I think they used Liverpool docks for, for one of the scenes. They picked on Manchester because there's a lot of brownstone buildings yes. which they have in Brooklyn and they have in uh, in New York City itself so there was a, a reason to be there and a lot of the first Batman film in fact all of the first Batman film was shot in the UK which people forget uh, the yep. majority on set but there were places in and around London where they where they used uh, real life buildings. The scenes for the Batman film have been shot during the day because if he shot it at night the Batmobile would be on bricks and in addition <laughs> if he's after a sidekick he won't have to go far to account- encounter Robin. Oh well, moving on, <laughs> moving on, sir. Oh, to get a, to do a whole news report just to get some bad puns in. I feel proud of myself. <laughs> um, whilst there's still no development on it, a sequel to The Man from Uncle hasn't been completely ruled out, and it would retain at least one of the stars. I quite liked Guy Ritchie's Man from Uncle. Now, the problem I had with it uh, was that it didn't feel like Man from Uncle, though I thought the casting was spot on. Uh, I love the look that it was set in the 60s. If you're going to do a spy movie, you've got to set it in the 60s because that was the heart of the spy movie. And, I, and, and I've read a couple of uh, other variations on scripts for The Man from Uncle and they were brought all up to date. But this kept the 60s and so it had that Cold War feel for it. It, it liked being The Man from Uncle because it liked the gadgets. But I think as a, as a 60s spy movie, I thought it was, it was pretty good. And, and I've not seen it again. Uh, I noticed it turned up on uh, on Netflix the other week, so I'm actually I'm actually ready to to give it another watch today. I, I did enjoy it the first time round. Yeah, I, I had a lot of love for it, and I've watched it twice since. And the film performed moderately on release, but it's grown an audience since it got onto home release, and the potential sequel has never been ruled out. Army Hammer has been uh, pitching and promoting Rebecca recently, and whilst pitching and promoting that in interviews, he was asked about the possibility of Man from Uncle. And his reply was, if someone was like, hey, do you want to do a sequel? I'd be like, hell yeah, let's go. I hear it. I get people being like, are you going to do a sequel? And the answer is, I hope so. I'd love to. So he is well on board. He just wants them to say, here you go. It's gone. Let's do it. And he will be signing up. Hopefully, Henry Cavill would uh, follow suit and we get that pairing. Because I think it's that pairing that really worked. Yeah, it did. It was. They were, they were good. I, I'm, a, I'm a lover of a good buddy movie. And it paid off extremely well as a buddy movie so fingers crossed on that one because i would love to see a return from the man from uncle well i've got some casting news for you and i've got some uncasting news as well for you 
So first of my my casting news is uh, more people have been added to the Doctor Strange upcoming sequel, uh, as well as Benedict Cumberbatch returning and Benedict Wong returning. We've now got uh, Zochi Gomez, who's been signed up for the sequel. I don't know anything about her work, but I know she's been signed up for the sequel. And in an uncasting Marvel-related news, Tatiana Maslany has debunked the casting news that she's been signed to play She-Hulk in the in the upcoming uh, Disney Plus series. What do you make of that, Andy? I'm not sure if this is her completely saying that she's nothing to do with it or whether she's playing coy, because we've seen this with Marvel films before. Benedict Cumberbatch played coy over the casting for Doctor Strange until he would he had signed, sealed and done it, even though the word was already out. Paul Rudd went on record to deny being anything to do with Ant-Man. And then three weeks later, he was Ant-Man. And Brie Larson completely denied anything to do with Captain Marvel. And then three weeks later, she was Captain Marvel. So I'm wondering whether it's more a case of it's not signed. She's in the final talks. She's probably going to get it give it a few weeks, but she can't say for definite. She's, she's being asked, basically, in an interview. It's like, is it true that you're She-Hulk? Now, if it's not signed, she can't turn around and say, yes, That's or right. maybe. She has to deny it until that signature's on the, on the paper. So let's give it a few weeks on this one and see what comes out of it. Obviously, the people who have been campaigning for Alison Brie to play the role have got all excited now because it's like, oh, she's not going to do it. So, uh, Alison, you've still got a chance. Let's just wait a few more weeks, see if anything gets confirmed, because this might just be a bit of um, coyness around it. Did you see this over the weekend about the return of John McClane, Bruce Willis bringing back John McClane? Oh, it's for an advert, isn't it? It is, yeah. Everyone got really excited. Well, some of us got moderately interested that John <laughs> McClane was returning with Bruce Willis reprising his iconic role. But it turns out, and it depends on how what you thought about the uh, the way the franchise turned out, not very well is the answer. Uh, <laughs> it was, in fact, uh, for a commercial. Yeah, I mean, we've been here before when people got excited that the big Lebowski was coming back. Yeah. And that was for an advert. Uh, and Back to the Future as well, wasn't there? Yeah, people need to stop getting excited about, um, oh, yeah, this, this is going to happen, especially when it's, uh, that came from nowhere. When's it coming out next week? That's not a film. And, and it, let's be honest, it's time to put Die Hard to bed. Straight into the ground. Uh, legendary pictures are close to final now this is going to excite you this, I, I guarantee this will excite you because it excited me legendary pictures are close to finalising their deal to grab the rights to book Rogers yes plans to develop come a film. on <laughs> and I you are getting excited I have been waiting for a good book Rogers movie for a long long time <laughs> I think it's absolutely right to, uh, to, to reboot uh, do something new and different with it. The only people who really ever remember anything about it is probably the TV series. So it's one of those that really gives you a, a, a great blank slate to to reinvent yeah. the character, do something interesting, uh, and bring it completely up to date. And kind of ignore the TV series, to be to be honest. For those yeah, who don't know, it Rogers came out in it was one of the first real sort of sci-fi heroes alongside Flash Gordon. It was the twenties. Uh, it was before Flash Gordon. Yeah, he was a, a character who was uh, in each one of his um, reiterations has been put into suspended animation uh, and brought round in the far flung thirtieth century future, where the majority of the time he was fighting uh, an evil, an evil empire run by Killer Kane. And so, I think there's an awful lot you could do with it. I think you can you can have a completely blank slate because people aren't endeared to a certain image of it and do something really fresh with it. So I'm all up for a, a Book Rogers movie. Uh, Don Murphy and Susan Monford, uh, Transformers, Real Steel, are aiming to produce. And the plans are not just for a film, but it's a multi-platform franchise. As is the way. Having a film, a TV series and an anime series to flesh out this universe that he's going to be thrust into, which, you know, it, they won't all revolve around Book Rogers himself, but some of the spin-offs will focus on other aspects of that society. I'm, I'm excited because, I, like you say, Book Rogers has such potential. And if you can adapt it to a modern, for a modern audience, the same way that Battlestar Galactica was reinvented in the early part of this century. Yeah, absolutely. And gave it, gave it a political and spiritual edge that the corny, cheesy TV series that we loved growing up didn't yeah. have. They can do the same with Book Rogers. And the closest thing that we've had to Book Rogers in recent decades is the TV series Farscape. Yeah, that was pretty much Book Rogers without the Book Rogers. Yeah, it, it had the, the book, same thing. Fact. 
thrust through a wormhole, ends up in a strange world, like a strange part of the galaxy, where warring factions are going against each other. Let's let's keep our fingers crossed on this because Book Rogers is something something that we grew with and we know yeah. that they can do something with. Uh, speaking of space, so we've spoken before about Adam McKay's next film, Don't Look Up, which is about two astronomers who embark on a media tour to warn mankind of an Earth-destroying asteroid that's on the way. It's, he's managed to score some pretty good cast, as you'd expect from an Adam McKay film. Yeah, he, he does like his ensembles, doesn't he? He, he knows. I mean, even if he gets people just to walk on for one scene or to explain um, economics to you from a bathtub, he, he knows how to just use people. And with this, we've got Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, Timothy Chalamet, Himesh Patel, Ariana Grande, Kid Coody, Matthew Perry, Jennifer Lawrence, and Thomas Sisley. That's a lineup. It is. I, I think he's just gone to his uh, gone to his phone and go. I'll call a couple of mates up see if they want to do a film. <laughs> do you think he phoned them in alphabetical order, or did yeah, he have, yeah, did he have them prioritised? Was Leo top of the list? Because I'd like to think that Leo will be the top of everyone's list. Yeah. <laughs> or did he leave until last and phone Jonah Hill first? <laughs> um, the film is being co-produced by Netflix and Paramount which means that it will be going to Netflix, but it might get the two or three week cinematic release like we're seeing quite a lot of the Netflix releases getting at the moment. I'm thoroughly enjoying, I think. Yeah. And it's written and directed by Adam McKay himself, who, for people who don't know who he is, he made films like Vice and The Big Short, which if you've not seen them, go check them out. Really good films. Uh, We've spoken about the Coming to America sequel. Yeah, well, we've mentioned it more than once. and We've not really got that excited about it, have we? When we mentioned it, we basically said it's like it's it's another one of those actors trying to play on the nostalgia for their old franchises. And as having not seen anything of coming to America, as they've called it, it doesn't really doesn't really upset me too much, except from a professional point of view, because it's going to Amazon in yet another blow to cinemas. Now, whilst this would never have been a big hitter when it was originally slated for December with the ever declining releases that are coming out, this mid-range film with a familiar name might have done some business. It might have been one of those films that was enough to bring people back into a into a cinema, just on, as you said, face recognition alone. Originally, it would have been up against your big hit, hitters and your big-name films. You know, it would have been up against June. It would have been up against Black Widow. It would have been up against Death on the Nile. Now, whilst Death on the Nile is still allegedly coming out in December, yeah, it, it would have been one of the... Coming to America would have been one of these ones for taking the family to. It's like, oh, well, come and see an actor who I used to love when I was your age, and hopefully he's going to be okay. Uh, in it, Eddie Murphy returns as Prince Akeem, who's set to become the king of the fictional country of Zamunda. And he discovers that he has a son that he never knew about in America, a street-savvy Queens native named Lavelle. And so, to honour the former king's dying wish to groom his grandson as the crown prince, Akeem and Semi set off to America. So it was just going to be more of the same. Yeah. But maybe, you know, that would have been, like you say, the kind of familiarity that would have just at least gained some footfall and given cinemas a lifeline. But yet another one going straight to streaming. I've got a couple of quickies for you. George Clooney is directing a John Grisham adaptation of Calico Joe. I'm not familiar with that particular story. I'm not a big fan of John Grisham. I only ever read The Firm and, and only really enjoyed The Firm out of the out of his movies. But I do like George Clooney as a director. I think he's uh, I think he's arty in the in the right yeah. way with a commercial street running through it. Uh, Michael B. Yeah. Jordan is producing a Static Shock movie. So yeah. back in order, uh, back in August during the first part of Warner Brothers' big DC fandom event, uh, they mentioned that they were going to do something new with Static Shock which was part of uh, uh, their milestone publishing. Uh, and it seems Michael B. Jordan is producing a, a static shot movie. Another bit of casting. Joaquin Phoenix is going to be playing Napoleon for Ridley Scott in the film Kitbag. This has been long on and off, hasn't it, this uh, Ridley Scott project? Yeah, I mean, he's had, Ridley Scott's had a lot of projects in the pipeline at some point that all of them are suddenly being greenlit because he's going to be a busy man over the next year or so. This kit bag is going to be an original and personal look at the origins of Napoleon and his ruthless climb to being emperor viewed through the eyes of his wife, Josephine. Uh, David Scarper, who gave us all the money in the world, is currently drafting the script. And Scott still has to finish up The Last Duel, which is shooting at the moment, before he moves on to Gucci. And then this film is lined up to be when that ends. So like I say, for the next year and a half, Scott is literally going bounce, bounce, bounce from one film to the other. Seen and team up with Joaquin Phoenix, who famously was in Gladiator, is uh, 
it's going to be an interesting interesting play, I think. And finally from me, Thor, and Thunderstar, Chris Hemsworth has revealed uh, when shooting is, is about to begin and teases that it's going to be something very different for Thor this mm-hmm. time round. And that shooting with director uh, Taiki Watiti is due to begin January 2021. I've also heard the new Spider-Man film is about to go imminently into production. Exciting time for films that I probably won't see because I'll be boycotting Disney. <laughs> Just to wrap up, Mad Max Furiosa, which has been on and off the cards for quite some time now. It's finally green lat and a green lat. <laughs> it's finally green lit and has cast three key members. Anya Taylor Joy, as we had already speculated, will be starring as a young Furiosa in a film that will cover her early days and show her rise to power in the ranks of the Morton Joe. And joining her are Chris Hemsworth and Yaya Abdul Mateen II, who we recently saw excellently in Chicago 7. And that's what we like to call the news. So if you're enjoying this episode, why don't you hit that subscribe button and also leave us a review because, well, that's what we need to read. Positive reviews in these dark times because I don't know if I'll be reading any negative reviews because there won't be any. You'll be enjoying it. But please subscribe as it enables us to uh, to bring in more sponsors and to do more exciting things. A quick mention talking of sponsors. Our sponsor of a few weeks ago, uh, Devil Shirts. I know, I know they're not sponsoring us anymore, but I can't help but just mention, have you seen their, their beanie hats that they've made? No, I've not actually. They've got a range of beanie hats now. I am buying oh. one. Are you in? <laughs> uh, I'm in. Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, uh, especially during lockdown, Andy has been going back through the library of missed films and therefore missed opportunities, I think. Uh, some of the films that Andy has missed over the last few weeks have been saddening, to be, to be perfectly honest. He missed <laughs> Chaplin. He missed Nashville. Yeah. He missed... What else have he missed, Andy? Loads. Loads. Uh, I've, I've just got so many gaps in my film history. It's phenomenal. But we have been remedying that by me selecting a year and Andy picking the films that uh, he, he missed in that particular year. So uh, last week we talked about Nashville, the Robert Altman film. And this week I selected the year 2000 and the film directed by Curtis Hansen and written by Steam Cloves, a comedy drama known as Wonder Boys. Sarah, there's something I gotta tell you. Well, that's funny, I need to talk to you too. You first. This morning. I'm pregnant. Hello? The nation's top critics agree. Wonder Boys is a comic dazzler. I just got my hood jumped on. With a pitch-perfect cast. Does that sound like anyone we know? Michael Douglas stars in one of his best and most surprising performances. How's the book? Don't touch it. Toby Maguire is impressively subtle. He now must be recognized as the outstanding 20-something actor. Where exactly are we going? See my wife? The one that left you? Francis McDormand is glorious. What's he doing here? I'm sort of helping him through some issues. Isn't he lucky? Robert Downey Jr. has never acted with more comic skill. Isn't that a nice greenhouse? It's Mrs. Gaskell's. It's her hobby here. Hmm. I thought you were Mrs. Gaskell's hobby. Katie Holmes acts with fire. Come on, Teach. I want you to dance with me. From the director of L.A. Confidential. Someone jumped on your car with their butt. How can you tell? Well, you can see the outline of a butt. Director Curtis Hansen not only understands the jokes, he knows how to place them in this handsomely mounted, graceful production. I just wanted to stay with you for a little while. I'm a teacher, James. Paramount Pictures and Mutual Film Company invite you to rediscover the wonder of it all. I lost a wife today. You'll find another. She'll be young, beautiful. They always are. Wonder Boys is terrific. Man, that book of yours must have been one nutty ride. This movie is pure pleasure. (laughs) Wonder Boys. It was based on the novel by Michael Chabon, starred Michael Douglas, who starred as Professor Grady Tripp, a novelist who teaches creative writing at a university, but he is unable to finish his much-anticipated second novel. So, Andy, tell me what you thought of Wonder Boys, and I'll preface that by saying it's a film I thoroughly enjoyed when I saw it. I've not revisited it, 
but when I saw it, I thought it was great. Well, I've had a good run with these films that I've not encountered a film that I've disliked yet out of all this going back to old history of Oscar films. And whilst there's been ones that have been better than the others, every one of them has been at least enjoyable enough to engage my time. So we get to this one. And it's yet another one that I really enjoyed. In fact, I'd say that this is one of the ones up the higher end of it. Yet what a pleasant gem of a film this is. It is, An isn't absolute it? absolute pleasant gem. It's a charming film. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's it's not a film about big moments. It's a, it's almost a film about nuance uh, and a film about, about the smaller things in life, like love and creativity and trust and passing down knowledge to somebody younger who's who's as accomplished as our main character it's got a great cast as we said uh michael douglas uh star toby Maguire. this was kind of my second introduction to toby Maguire after pleasantville just pre if i remember pre-spider-man yeah francis mcdormand uh katie holmes rip torn and of course at a point in his career when he was doing smaller ensemble roles, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, I mean, that, that cast is a great line. Or Toby Maguire is brilliant as the promising young writer uh, who has some personal issues going on and is uh, a bit of a strange personality. But it's the mentorship that Michael Douglas's Professor Grady gives him. He, he, he latches onto him and he takes him under his wing. And unfortunately, also introduces him to uh, his editor, played by Robert Downey Jr., who has aspirations to get involved with Tobey Maguire's character for not only his literary skills that he's impressed with, but he also sees him as a bit of a bedfellow. Yeah. There's nothing depressive about it, despite the fact that it touches on quite a lot of personal things. Yeah. There's nothing overly comical about it, despite the fact that it does have genuine comic comedy moments, because it's all played very simply and very straight, and that fits it perfectly. Curtis Hansen directs it, I think we've spoken about this before, that he's one of those directors that doesn't have a particular style. And so he adapts to the material beautifully. Yeah, and with he's, this, he's, a, he's more than a workmanlike, uh, and I mean that in a, in a positive way, more than a workmanlike director. He turns up and always does a, a spot-on job. And uh, and he does very, very well with this. He, he He's covered a, he's covered numerous sort of genres and an ensemble comedy drama isn't isn't something you would you would consider but he'd just come off the back of uh, la confidential so he was hot property at that point yeah he directs this with a very casual style and he allows the stars to do their thing for him and every one of the casting elements in here is perfectly placed even down to i mean katie holmes had a very short run of her career on film and yeah. has kind of like disappeared into the sidelines a bit but she stands out in this as another student who rents a room at Grady's house and has has the hots for teacher, basically. But teacher doesn't reciprocate. And she plays it just just to that edge of could have been a parody, but comes across real. And Frances McDormand is always brilliant. And here is like the, the wife of the chancellor who Grady is having an affair with. She plays a conflicted character who's trying to decide on which side of the fence of her love life she wants to stay with. It's a strong lineup that really helps this film. Robert Downey Jr. is in a support role, but he shines in the scenes that he's in. He's never in the background, and he takes, he dominates a few of the moments. It's a great film. It's witty, but never overly comic. Dramatic, but never dreary. Absolutely effortless film, and one that I will be going back to revisit again sometime down the line. And just to talk about Robert Downey Jr., um, during that particular period, he was on probation in the winter of 1999, um, for, for the drug problem that he, he had. Uh, the producers and, and Curtis Hansen were very cautious about working with him because of his drug history and were concerned it would be a tough film to shoot as it would be shot in uh, uh, in Pittsburgh on location during the winter. But the yeah. actor, of course, demonstrated that, that he was he was, uh, he was always a professional. He was always an, an amazing go-to guy. Um, and we saw what happened when he, he managed to work through his demons. And I, I've heard it said about him that you know, the, one of the reasons that he did what he did, you know, he had that trouble. Does he actually made it, it gave him it gave him an edge, which made at that point his work better. And so when he came yeah. to terms with his demons, you know, he could he could, uh, he, could he could embrace those demons and, and put that back into his work. But he was uh, at that particular point, he'd, he'd been 
uh, relegated to to being a supporting actor after he'd had so many lead roles. So it was one of those films that that did incredibly well at uh, as a as a was it a bomb in theatres? It was marketed badly. Uh, okay. It got a re it got re a re release. The campaign for a re release because the marketing for it was tragic. It was released just after the announcements for the nominations for the Academy Awards, and so it was overshadowed by the all the publicity for all the films that they wanted to get the Oscars for. And the 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 campaigning for it tried to make Michael Douglas. I, I saw one criticism saying that it made him look too Robin Williams esque, and they were trying to tie into like that Goodwill Hunting kind of vibe. So uh, when they remarketed it, it did better. Okay, because it wasn't, as, as we said, it wasn't a big box office uh, success, but it, it was a, a, a critically loved film. People enjoying the fact that it got campus life correct. Uh, Michael Douglas and Tobey Maguire do wonders in a in a in what was considered a, a clever and dark comedy. Ultimately, it's a film that I really like. It's a film that uh, has heart. It's funny, but as you said, it's it's never hysterical. It's dramatic without being over dramatic. It's just a nice drama. It's just one of those films where all the pieces fit really, really well with a great cast, uh, great scripts, and great direction. It's a, it's a very engaging watch. I, I was never once distracted from the screen when I was watching it, and that that for me is always a, good, a sign of a good film that you just in, immediately fall into the characters and you're interested to see where their lives are going. Okay, so for our next film coming up next week we have chosen the year 1995 and out of that year well there was some some good contenders there was warren beatty's red but i have gone for quiz show which i think will knock you out i think you'll be absolutely amazed <laughs> um and i will be so so surprised if, uh, if if you don't enjoy it i think it is 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 the perfect Andy film. If I don't enjoy it, that's it. We're cancelling the sh cancelling the show. No cancelling more, no more episodes. We're over. <laughs> well, pressure's on. <laughs> pressure's on. You better like it, boy. Okay, so um, Andy's had a chance to go to the cinema over the last week, and I've caught up with something on Netflix. Andy, you're going to be talking about Rebecca, the new adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's classic, uh, previously made by... Alfred Hitchcock, and this time brought to us by Ben Wheatley. And I'll be giving you my overview of Vampires versus the Bronx. Okay, and starting with Rebecca. She wouldn't have a lady's maid, you know. I don't want anyone but you, Danny. Do you see how tall she was? Hmm. She could wear anything with a figure like hers. Mrs. Danvers, does Mr. De Winter ask you to keep the room like this? It doesn't have to. She's still here. Can you feel her? I wonder what she's thinking about you, taking her husband and using her name. Does she just want him to be happy? Happy? No, he'll never be happy. She was the love of his life. So uh, I could have seen this with you. Um, circumstances meant that I didn't get get a chance to watch it, and we we're going to watch it on the big screen. But did you did you see it on the big screen, or did you get to watch it on Netflix? I saw it on the big screen thanks Fantastic. to the limited cinema release that it's getting across the UK in independent theatres and the light cinema. Now I only know Rebecca. I don't know the novel, but I only know it, of course, from Hitchcock. Hitchcock was, was what I studied at university, so I had to see literally uh, everything. And a couple of uh, interesting points that, that I'm going to ask you about before we get into it is remaking anything that Hitchcock's done. Does the shadow of Hitchcock uh, uh, stretch across this particular version of it? Hitchcock's film is so widely regarded and it's so important within film history that it's hard to step away from the shadow of it. And this, this is a film that's been adapted five times for the screen over the years. And, you know, you always have to ask the questions like, do we need another ad adaptation? Because as well as that, there's been like seven or eight different TV adaptations and radio dramas and theatres. So it, it's one of the most widely adapted stories of all time. However, the Hitchcock film had to make some change. Was It made some changes from the book story. There were some aspects of the book that were left out of it. 
So this approach gives a chance to reinstate some of those elements back in and make the film stand as its own. Uh, for those who don't know the story of Rebecca, it's a young newlywed arrives at her husband's imposing family estate on a windswept English coast and finds herself battling the shadow of his first wife, Rebecca, whose legacy lives on in the house long after her death. Complications are brought about because the newlywed is from the servant class and she's marrying into money. And so all the servants of the estate see her as undeserving, especially Mrs. Danvers, the housekeeper, who seems to be out to get Mrs. De Winter, played by Lily James. The cast in this film, Army Hammer and Lily James are the key stars. Army Hammer as Maxim De Winter. Kristen Scott Thomas plays Mrs. Danvers in a brilliant, brilliantly creepy and menacing performance. And you've also got Keely Hawes in there as Beatrice. Sam Riley's in there as Jack Flavelle. You can't fault the cast in this. Now, I know that one of your concerns with this was that you're not as enamoured with Ben Wheatley as what I am. No, I I try to like Ben Wheatley, and there's only been one film that I've sort of uh, I've enjoyed. I'm just not not a big fan of his style. I find it I find it a little bit artsy for sometimes the subject matter, and I think the artsy takes over from the narrative. Is it a is it a Ben Wheatley film? This doesn't feel like a Ben Wheatley film. Okay. This feels like a completely different approach for him making it. It is a period drama and it does stick pretty well to the books. There's there's an addition at the end of the film, uh, which some people have said as fans of the books that they don't feel it was necessary. But as a cinematic adventure, I think that it works well. He 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 directs it like like an episode of Brideshead Revisited. Okay. <laughs> it's got that stately home kind of feel, but it's also got lush and luxurious settings. The The scenery is beautiful. The grounds and the house itself are amazing. It Wheatley seems to have matured for this film. And for me as a fan of like his normal works, where he, he adds his own little nuances and quirks, they seem to be missing from this, but in a good way. I feel that if he had to put his own stamp on it completely, it might have damaged what is a good period drama and a classic tale. Okay, so he feels like he's, he's working to the material rather than bringing his, his own individual style to it. Yeah, and this this kind of like, we, we mentioned last week that after he made this, in the interim, he's gone back and done a low-budget film that he kept secret just to as a palate cleanser. And it now makes sense why he's done that after doing this. Because this is so far removed from what he normally does, he just wanted to get back to doing something of his style as a side project before he goes on to Tomb Raider. Right. And if he can keep doing this kind of thing where he'll break his normal tradition and do something a bit more masterful, I think he could embrace a wider audience than you know people like me who are his core audience. It will open him up to other people. I'll be interested once you come to see, see this to see what you think of it being have a different opinion of Ben Wheatley overall than what I am. Uh, but like I say, as a fan of Ben Wheatley, I'm actually pleased that he's uh, stepping out of his comfort zone a bit. I think this is a film that I would watch more so at the cinema than I would on Netflix. My feeling is if I watched it on TV, I would be more distracted than I would be watching in a cinema. I think it's one of those, those films that feels lush from what I've seen about it. I need to be uh, uh, seduced by it on a, on a big screen. I didn't catch who um, Andy is playing the second Mrs. De Winter in this version. Lily James is Mrs. De Winter, and she's marvellous. She is absolutely marvellous. She's awkward. She's clumsy. She, feel, she feels like she doesn't belong, and she plays that well that she doesn't... She's finding it hard to adjust to this lifestyle where people wait on you, and she's making, like, little faux pas... And she's not. She's wanting to fit in and trying a bit too hard, which is where Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers strikes. She sees her insecurities and she plays on them in an absolutely brilliant way. But special mention has to go out to Army Hammer. Army Hammer should be a bigger star. Yeah, he's he not one of these. One of those guys who's just who's, who's not seemed to 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 make it into uh, into the big leagues. Uh, I mean, I've always thought he was he's been good. I remember him. I first saw him in, in, in the fantastic, sadly cancelled series Reaper, uh, where he played the, the, the son of the devil. Uh, of course, he was in Social Network. And, and then in The Lone Ranger, which basically 
kind of kicked his career back because it was it was such a, a, a huge flop, even though you and I have a great look for the Lone Ranger. But yeah, I agree. Yeah. Army Hammer is, is somebody who should be a big star. Nearly played Batman at one point. Yeah, he fits into this role perfectly, probably because he is the son of a billionaire businessman, Michael Armand Hammer, and the great-grandson of an oil ty- tycoon, Armand Hammer. So, you know, he's come from wealth himself, so he plays the wealth, but he shines on screen. And yeah, he... He's got the looks, he's got the charisma, he's got the acting ability. He just needs, he needs a breakout role that doesn't suffer at the box office because, like you say, Lone Ranger should have been the one that rose into complete top of the range. And then that didn't. Man from Uncle should have been the next one to put him at top. And again, it didn't. He just needs that one thing to really get him to stand out. But... Until he finds them, I'm happy to see him in these small period pieces or smaller films. And doing character parts, basically, isn't he? Well, we're going to see him soon in Death on the Nile as well. Yeah. He pops up in there. He's he's a great character actor, and he's and such an engaging presence on screen. And the chemistry between him and Lily James convinces. It works well. So this is a film that is well worth seeing. If there's a chance to see it on the big screen, get it watched while it's on its limited cinema release. But if not, it will be coming to Netflix. Okay, that sounds like a high recommendation. Uh, my film's a lot more lowbrow than Rebecca and Daphne du Maurier, but it's a film that I enjoyed, uh, and that's Vampires versus the Bronx. Now, coming up to Halloween, we were looking to view something that the uh, the kid could watch. Now, the kid's only seven, and we're trying to introduce him into, well, into being scared and having nightmares and having to sleep and scream during the night because what other parent wouldn't do that for their child? So we tried to find a film that um, that would appeal to be horrific, but appeal to a kid. And we found Vampires vs. the Bronx. Now, I think it's a little bit older than uh, what a seven-year-old could go through, but there's nothing really horrific about it. A comedy horror directed by Osme Rodriguez, Oz Rodriguez, who is probably best known in the States for directing segments of Saturday Night Live. Of course, the backdrop to the story is the Bronx in, in uh, just outside of New York. So when gentrification from an unlikely and very deadly source creeps into their neighborhood, a group of teenage friends rally around to save their, lo- their, their beloved local area and fight against the supernatural force of the title. And you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a, it's a thinly disguised parody. It's a thinly disguised parody on gentrifications of areas and mentions that all the way through. But that gives it that gives it something to talk about. It, it's uh, it's got a, a lovely sort of uh, horror comedy tone in which the references are kind of universal. They have these kids have to watch Blade to see how they get rid of uh, of, of, of vampires. It's set in a, in a predominantly black and Hispanic area and plays to that as its strength. It's very likable. But it also has, has this little bit of, uh, of emotional gravitas to it. Again, these, these are kids fighting for a way of life and, and dealing with a, a, a much bigger issue, uh, the loss of, uh, loss of a neighbourhood, the, the areas that they, they grew up in, and they're being sold out to predominantly white folks. If you want to see something that feels a little bit fresh, that you can watch as a family, then I, I can't recommend Vampires vs. Bronx enough. I think it's a witty, likeable comedy horror film. Has um, gave me memories of, of Lost Boys, and it manages to, yes, I'm going to say it, put a stake into some real, honest issues. <laughs> so it's just, it's, a, it's one of those horror comedies that's, that's full of charm. It's agile, it's funny, it's inventive, and therefore... It just ticks all the boxes and we all win as viewers. And, and it's sometimes it's a fine line doing horror and comedy. And especially when you're aiming at a, a much younger age group. But this film manages to pull it off very, very well and still has something to say on its commentary on gentrification. It's another Netflix film, isn't it? So it's uh, one that people can check out now. Yeah, you can check it out now just in time for Halloween. Actually, it's a bit of a call out to you listeners. I'm trying to find some kid-friendly Halloween movies. I'd like to hear your suggestions. Uh, Andy, before we move on, uh, anything else out there on the major platforms that we can stream over the next week? The first four movies of the Welcome to the Bloom House productions all landed. Uh, They've all landed on Amazon. Now, we spoke about these a few months ago that this is there's going to be eight films in total and they were releasing four of them in October and the other four are going to be the start of next year. And the, there are another chance that the, for Bloomhouse to do what Bloomhouse does 
in that they gave small budgets to new and upcoming directors and storytellers to bring a story to the screen. And working with Amazon, it gives them a chance to give small little movies, 90 minutes to 110 minutes kind of films, each an individual story. Now, the first four are a very mixed bag. Okay. Briefly run through them. You've got Evil Eye, in which a mother becomes obsessed with the idea that her daughter's new fiancé is the reincarnation of her own abusive ex who tried to kill her. Sounds like an engaging story. It's possibly the worst of the four. Oh, right. Okay. It's very tired, very laboured, and there's nothing really original in there. The cast aren't great in it, and I just felt myself, it felt a chore to watch this one. Right. Then you've got Black Box. Now, this, for me, was the one that stood out. A single father who loses his wife and memory in a car accident undergoes experimental treatment. He starts to then have strange visions and begins to question who he really is. Was he the good husband that everyone says he was, or was he abusive? And this, for me, it felt like a Black Mirror episode, and I think that's why it worked. It's well cast, it's well played, and even though you can start to piece things together towards the final act and you start to work out exactly what's happening, it doesn't let the story down because it feels like you've uncovered that secret yourself. It feels like it was a natural progression of the story. I, right. I, I engaged with this film quite well. I'd said it was the strongest. Now, one that other people are saying is the strongest is a film called Nocturne, in which twin jealousy and supernatural forces combine when the less confident of a pair of twins who are in the arts finds the diary of a deceased classmate and begins to see events play out similar to the strange images sketched within. But the last page of the images is missing. So what is it going to lead to? And this is one that Black Swan has done similar kind of storylines of jealousy and, you know, what the struggle for power at any cost. For me, it didn't quite work. It didn't gel. I couldn't, I didn't care for the characters. And it was very formulaic. But other people have latched onto it because you expect Bloomhouse to be horror. And I think this is the closest to horror out of these four. Right. That was, the, that was the, kind of my next question, really. Are these are these thrillers or are they horror? Most of them are thrillers. Uh, Nocturne is the one that is the one that you'd more or less staple as horror because it uses the supernatural forces aspect in there. And then finally, you've got The Lie, which The Lie is a pure mixed bag. Uh, divorced, divorced parents concoct a lie to protect their daughter after she reveals that she's killed her friend. Now, this one, there's there's so much to like about it. There's so much in there that kind of works, but it's uneven in tone. It doesn't know if it wants to be taken seriously or whether it's a black comedy, or maybe the acting is just a bit bad and it's not supposed to even think about being a black comedy. But there's moments that I genuinely laughed at and I'm not sure that we're supposed to. Casting is average, except for Peter Sarsgaard, who is absolutely marvellous. He stands out, but it feels at times that he's in a different film to everyone else. And it's not a film that I disliked, it's just an average experience. So overall, these first four Bloomhouse films, none of them have been great. The best black box for me, I'd say, is maybe a three and a half out of five at best. And the weakest, Evil Eye, is less than a one. But you've got to respect the fact that it's new directors and new writers being given a chance to tell a story. And that's what this whole Welcome to the Bloomhouse is about. So I, I urge people to check them out themselves. Okay, because they are they are available on Amazon, and like I say, other people are saying Nocturne's the best one. I didn't take to it, so you might you might take to Evil Eye, you might take to The Lie. Who knows? They're worth checking out just to see new creators trying to bring a new vision to life. I'll be giving that definitely a shot. I'm going to point out on Apple TV on the Rocks, which I reviewed last week, and uh, that was a, a collaboration with Apple TV. And uh, if you want to know more about it, listen to last week's show. And now a quick roundup of what to expect this coming week on the three major streamers in the UK. So on Netflix, on the 21st, okay, we've spoken about it in the reviews. I've urged people to see it. If you're not going to get a chance to see it on the big screen, Rebecca comes out on Netflix. And on the 23rd, Over the Moon, their new animation, which looks sumptuous and also has a limited cinema release at the moment, that's out available for streaming. But with this one, I definitely urge that you, you, over the half term next week on the run to Halloween, treat the kids to over the moon at the cinema if you can, if there's one near you. On Amazon, Parasite lands on the 23rd. Which, which was the last thing I saw in the cinema before lockdown. Oh, wow. That's that's throwing your mind back, isn't it? And uh, 1917 is out now, which that just landed there the other day. And I was like, where did that come from? So two great films from the start of this year, which are well worth exploring. And over on Now TV. 
You've got their brand new production of The Secret Garden, which again has a limited cinema release across the UK. If you can get a chance to watch it on the big screen, do so and hashtag Save Our Cinemas. But on the 23rd, it comes to Now TV and Sky Movies. And also, one of my favourite films of the year, one of my top picks, The Lighthouse, comes out on the 25th. Fantastic. Not for everybody. And I will completely understand it if people report back to me and say, I hated that film completely. But for me, this was one of the highlights. It was a two-man play, basically, on screen. And it's chilling, it's engrossing, it's engaging, and it's out there. I'm looking forward to seeing Overlord, the J.J. Abrahams-produced film, because there's nothing I love more than uh, zombies in World War II. I'm looking forward to that one. Also, a film I'm looking forward to is a new British horror film uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I've heard it called one of the best British horror film debuts of the year. It's about a refugee couple who arrived from South Sudan. They arrive in England, are granted a house, one in which they told that they can never leave under any circumstances. As they try to adapt to their new lifestyle, they find that their house is home to an incredibly angry spirit. So looking forward to that one. That's coming up on Netflix. That's his That's coming up on Netflix. That's his house. Okay, that's about it for this week. But before we wrap up, uh, we like to uh, talk about things that we've watched, seen, read, heard. Things that we like to think of as our neat thing. Andy, I know your neat thing already, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. My neat thing, oh, that I'm, I'm a complete and utter Trekkie. And Star Trek Discovery, it gets a lot of flack from people online who want Star Trek to just be like the 60s version and not grow up. Yeah, but for me, cool. Discovery, <laughs> Discovery has been great since uh, the first season onwards. Second season was amazing once they introduced Pike into there. And for people who watched it so far will know that the second season finished with a, a bit of a cliffhanger with them getting thrust through a wormhole into an uncertain future. The first episode of season three landed on Friday and it was such a joy. 900 years they've jumped forward in time. And the first episode focuses purely on Michael Burnham, who exits the wormhole in her suit that she used to open it and immediately crashes into a small craft piloted by David Ajala's book character. They then crash onto a planet nearby and she begs him to help her get a message to Discovery. But the future that she's arrived in is very different to the one that she's from. The Federation is no longer a big force and there was an event known as the Burn about 130 years earlier that eradicated most of the dilithium resources in the galaxy. So there's mystery of what's caused the universe to be where it is. She's trying to find the Discovery. We haven't seen what's happened to that crew yet. I imagine they're going to do the every other episode approach. You get to see one side and then another. I'll find out this week, but I am excited. Visually, it's spectacular. The cast, again, are on on form. This is Trek for me. This is a modern Trek, and it's a Trek that we need in this day and age. Anyone who complains that it's not like proper Trek, they clearly never paid attention to Trek because it's exactly what Trek should be. It's science fiction with messages within there, and it's marvellously done. I had uh, I didn't have the in- initial love for Discovery. I've stuck with it all the way through. You're right; it's absolutely stunning uh, visually. It's 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 breathtaking as a as a series. It didn't find its feet for me until the second season. Um, I've heard good things about about series three, so I am I am more than ready to be on board with that one. Looking forward to to jumping in. My neat thing for this week is, well, I talked about it as my neat thing a few weeks ago, and that was uh, The Boys. Uh, At this point, I'd not seen right up to the end, but was enjoying it. And now we've had the finale. I'm not going to do any spoilers, because if you uh, aren't up to date with it, um, you'll probably come around and and swear at me in that (laughs) British accent that uh, um, attempts to be done every week. But it has been a ride. Thoroughly enjoyed each and every episode. But the after the penultimate episode of the boys' second season ended with a, well, should we say a courtroom splatter fest? <laughs> didn't know where the show was going. Didn't know what surprises were going to be uh, uh, going to be on offer. And it's it's matched up to the hype. I can't wait for season three. I know they're about to go into production. Um, it's been a it's been a fantastic series. Funny thrilling, shocking, uh, some of the worst language I have ever heard uh, on a TV series. And that adds to the charm of it to, to a degree. I'm, funny enough, I'm not one for, for, for bad language in, in, in TV. 
but the boys the, the way it's, it's used it, it's almost like like swearing's another character it's bloody yeah. it's the probably the most violent series you'll ever see in your life uh, and it's been great and in, and this season has managed to add some interesting political overtones to it which uh, while not too subtle have, have added something to it and with a climax to the series which can only be described as a shocking climax you'll know what i mean when you finally get to see it it's been absolutely fantastic and i can't wait as i said for series three so my neat thing has been season two of the boys yeah the second season it, it, it it's been more confident in yeah, itself yeah absolutely throughout. that's a good way of looking at it the first season utilized the superhero approach to draw people in but just took it to like the gory extremes aspect with this one like you say the political aspects the storytelling um, that it, everything is a perfect analogy for the world that we live in at the moment using superheroes as the front man marvellous so that's it for this week we'll see you hopefully next week with another show as goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him just remember who your friends are and who your enemies are you <laughs>